Welcome to the Climate Workshop Podcast. I'm Peter Bowden. This episode is a conversation between Tim DeChristopher and his co-defendant, Karenna Gore, director of the Center for Earth Ethics at Union Seminary. Recorded March 27, 2018, immediately after the surprising verdict in the West Roxbury Pipeline resistance trial. They discuss their experience of civil disobedience that led to the trial and the groundbreaking result of an acquittal by reason of the necessity defense. During the conversation, you'll also hear the voices of filmmaker and activist Dea Schlossberg, who recorded the episode, thanks Dea, and Climate Disobedience Center founder, Jay O'Hara. Before we get into this episode, Tim and I just want to thank all of our podcast supporters. That's right, we're working towards becoming 100% listener supported. If you value these conversations, go to our website, climateworkshop.org, and click Become a Patron. It's really easy to support the show, and there's a video there explaining exactly how it works. So check it out, climateworkshop.org. Click Become a Patron. Thanks for your support. And now, our episode with Tim DeChristopher and Corinna Gore. We're here today after the close of our semi-trial for the West Roxbury Pipeline Resistance, where where 13 of us uh, have taken our case to trial, and and it's been a two-year campaign, a two-year process to get to this point, and we finally got some closure on that today. And I'm here today with Corinna Gore, one of my co-defendants, who has been on this case uh, with me ever since June of 2016, and uh, we were just talking about how how big of a time frame that has been, and, and how it's difficult to even keep everything straight in our heads of everything that has happened since then, and where we were at 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 that point back then. Um, so you want to do you want to take us back to that point of where where you were at in June of 2016 and why you chose to engage in this civil disobedience action and what it meant for you? Sure, so I was, well I'm Corinna Gore and I work at Union Theological Seminary and um, we were having a training of ministers there to talk about climate change and uh, I heard about the West Roxbury lateral pipeline in that context. But I had already become aware of pipelines as this manifestation of our addiction to fossil fuels and this trajectory that we were on that we can't seem to get off of. And in New York State had become involved in uh, fighting um, the Constitution pipeline in particular. And so through that process, had learned about the FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, all of the complicated things that make people want to just look the other way, but are actually the underpinnings um, of, of this system. So I already knew something about why these uh, projects go in despite opposition. But when I heard about West Roxbury and I heard about the fact that even the city of Boston was suing against this project, and when I met several people who'd already been involved, Mariama White-Hammond, uh, Margaret Bullitt-Jonas, and when I heard from you, Tim, about the vision for this particular action, uh, it felt very, it felt compelling. Um, and I, I don't know if maybe you're going to talk more about the particular action or if I should, but... Um, Go ahead and, and talk about it and talk about what was compelling for you about it. So... Um, 
This action used the pipeline trench to evoke the mass graves that uh, were being dug in Pakistan in anticipation of victims of heat waves um, that have been caused by the, the man-made climate change pollution in the air. So, um, in a way, it touches a different part of our consciousness to evoke something with that kind of physical action and to go and, and lie in, in, in a trench uh, and thinking about mass graves and the fact that there is an, a quite literal connection. I mean, part of what we're dealing with this, with this whole crisis is the slow violence of it. Mm -hmm. It's a very violent situation. Actions that are taken today are going to cause millions of people to die. But we have to do a few things cognitively. First, n not let these individual pipelines be segmented the way that they are, but understand it's the whole system, and also take that leap in time. So um, the issue with the with part of what I found compelling was to do a uh, what was a symbolic act, uh, but also uh, framed by a very real process of expressing grief and reflection on the connection to those deaths mm -hmm. and to that violence. So we had the eulogies and we had um, words expressed by people in from the community and by people uh, drawing from their faith traditions and then um, and then the, the lying in the mass grave. So for me um, the, to, to make that connection to something happened on the on the other side of the world was important to be in a community that had fought back actively through all the proper democratic channels mm -hmm. um, was important. And, uh, and it was also a feeling through the day that there was a cohesiveness and a timeliness and a commitment and a real open-heartedness on the part of this particular group to see this through. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely a powerful action for a lot of us involved. Um, and it's been such a long process since then with all these, I, mean, I, don't, I don't even know how many court appearances we've had since then. Um, and, and plenty of options to, to stop that process. You know, initially, you know, they offered us uh, a plea bargain that, that had really minimal consequences, just probation. Um, and, and a lot of the people who were part of this sustained campaign over the course of, of a year or so there in West Roxbury, um, took the, those deals, um, in, in a lot of people's cases, so that they could get back out and, and fight this pipeline, fight other pipelines. Um, can you talk a little bit about why it was important for you to stick with this legal process, with this case, keep, keep showing up to the hearings, keep going through it, take it all the way to the point of, of trial? Mm -hmm. Well, this action for me definitely was a case of going with a very strong internal feeling about the right thing to do in each moment. So mm -hmm. I didn't even know I was joining it until the day before when, as you know, I called you just to check in and see what we could do to be supportive uh, from the Center for Earth Ethics. And you said, well, you could join. And I thought, yeah, I could. And that's what I'm going to do. And so every step and away along the way was like that was for me. Was this your first civil disobedience action that yes. you were arrested in? Yes, this was my first uh, civil disobedience, first arrest, and um, and I, I had thought about, I'm like many people of our generation, a real student of the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. in awe of how uh, 
people had the courage and clarity to change our country through breaking those unjust laws, the Freedom Riders, um, the you know defiance of injunctions, like with in the case of, of Dr. King and sit lunch counter sit-ins, mm -hmm. and the power of that, and particularly the power of the way in which those laws were openly broken in order to unmask the injustice inherent in them, um, and the violence inherent in them, uh, was something that, that as a student of American history and, and someone who cares about how, why, what it is that we need to uh, find within ourselves to really make this change in this country. It's not just data, it's not just science, it's not just economics. Um, we have all that. Mm -hmm. It's really about a, a, a deep conviction and uh, the kind of um, imagination and ability to risk, I think, as a whole society. And so to, to be in a position where, um, and so I talked about civil disobedience at, at, in the seminary context mm -hmm. um, in terms of, of faith traditions and social change. And to have the opportunity present itself um, just made it, it was very clear that, that I was happy to join in that and, um, and really be there in support of the other people that had worked so hard to make that moment possible. And so also just getting to know the people in West Roxbury who'd done that, the Climate Disobedience Center who's done such a great job training people and articulating this. So, um, so for me it was, it was a very clear path to take. And as, and as things have evolved the past year and a half, almost two years now, since we took that action, and um, you know, as we were just saying, this was June of, of 2016, uh, you know, Standing Rock was, was something that, that I was familiar with at that time, but it was still a small encampment, um, and then a couple, within a couple months it grew into a, a huge uh, movement moment that was happening there. Um, and then, you know, just a few months after that, Trump got elected and then sort of like our whole political system had, um, you know, this massive shift and, um, and all these opportunities for, for resistance, all this necessity for, for resistance, um, has emerged over the past year and a half. And, and for me, I've had some, some difficulty, like maintaining clarity at some point that I still had some of these balls up in the air, you know, with previous actions that, like, we're still moving it through the court system. Sometimes there was, like, two or three months in between our, our court dates where it was like, oh, yeah, I forgot. I'm still dealing with this case. Um, can you talk about how that was for you to try to, like, maintain sort of a, uh, a coherence or, like, a sense of direction when it's like, there's just we're just constantly barraged with mm -hmm. new shit to deal with mm -hmm. all the time. I, I think that this case um, certainly it, it, you're you're right to point out how much has changed and how dramatic it has been. Um, I mean, we knew what we were up against at this at this point in time before Trump was uh, was president. And then, and we were vocalizing the, 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 the death grip that the fossil fuel industry has on our, on our political system. And it was true at the time, but then to see the CEO of Exxon yeah. go to be Secretary of State and people barely bat an eye yeah. is breathtaking. Yeah. 
-hmm. And I, I felt through that so happy that I had something to hold mm -hmm. on to also because it's a way to match your, uh, your, your, your deep sense of, of kind of astonishment and I suppose outrage is the right word, but it's, it's, almost, it's almost like your breath is taken away by how, how, um, how blatant it, it, this is. Uh, and to match that with something that is an action taken um, to counter it in a way that is physical, is palpable, is putting yourself outside of the system. I mean, this is a situation in which many of us feel very complicit just by the fact of using gasoline, if nothing else, you know? And so to, to try to, to just actively put yourself on the outside of it. Um, I was, I've been very grateful to have something to hold on to through this uh, mm -hmm. rise of Trump, with, and Rex Tillerson and Scott Pruitt, and the, the absolutely devastating agenda that's now being put into place. Yeah. Should I ask you questions, or you're asking all the You can ask me questions, <laughs> yeah. Is someone else interviewing Tim at all? Or? I have a question for both of you guys. Yeah. Um, I know that a big part of the action involved flying silently in the sun in a trench for hours. And um, I, as I was listening to, to everybody's statement today, I was wondering how much of that, of those statements um, kind of got solidified in the trench that day. Where else that took you? Yeah. For me, very little, um, you know, um, you know, I had, I think I had a lot of the clarity, um, around framing this beforehand. I mean, I gave a speech before we got into the trench, um, and, and then put it more into a, a legal necessity defense framework as we've moved along through the court process and particularly over the past few months of preparing for trial. Um, when I was laying in the trench there, I was, um, I was actually thinking much more about my own mortality. Um, and for me, it was an experience like lying in a grave. I mean, we were, we were six feet down and, um, just a week before that, I had been at my partner's grandfather's memorial service where we filed past his grave and we looked in and you know, like said our, our few words and moved on. And, um, and then I was laying there six feet down looking up and there were these cops and firefighters, or I mean cops and, and workers filing by and they would kind of like look down and mutter something and move along. And, and I had this experience of being on the opposite side of, of the grave that I had been um, paying respects to a week before. And, and I thought a lot about um, like my own my own death, I thought a lot about those who had died in the heat wave in Pakistan. Uh, the people who ended up filling that mass grave were the unclaimed bodies, the people who had no one to file past and pay their final respects. Um, and and I felt um, I felt a gratitude actually for those people filing past at that point, and 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 felt a lot of gratitude for. The people that I had in my life that um, that would be paying their respects if if this was in fact my grave on that day, um, and so it was a very spiritual experience for me, um, 
and and we were actually in the shade for most of it. I was not in the shade. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I was in the shade after like the first half an hour because the the steepness of the trench cast mm -hmm. a shadow, and I kind of scooted over to be underneath the pipeline too, um, and. Uh, and then after the firefighters strapped us up in, in the board and lifted us out, like I suddenly hit that sunshine again, and it was like really blazing hot, and um, and it was like a feeling of, of like coming back into the world, um, mm -hmm. which which was uh, an experience for sure. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, well, I I felt that the, the, the vision of the connection to the mass graves in Pakistan was very powerful. And, I, and, and the very fact of having any community in the United States living in the sort of production consumption cycles that we live in here, and obviously there's a lot of inequality within that, but any community in the United States to do an act in solidarity with people across the world who are not culpable at all in the system of, of, of the fossil fuel pollution, but yet are suffering on this level from the impacts, was so um, significant and important. I felt when I was in the trench um, that, oh yeah, what was the name of the woman who, I'm forgetting her first name, who just spoke, uh, who's Native American? Um, Carrie. Carrie. Carrie Labrador. Well, I mentioned Carrie because she spoke in a very compelling way and actually touched on something that, that related to what I felt in the trench. So when I was actually down there, I was feeling it was cool underneath the earth. You could feel a slight dip mm -hmm. in the temperature underneath you, and um, it was actually being in the earth. And I felt a, a deep sense of solidarity with the earth. Mm. And I think that... For me, it was also a kind of feeling of, of, of gender, being female, because all of the people peering in were all uniformed and all male. So it was all police and firemen um, and spectra workers mm -hmm. in uniform. And underneath, it felt very ununiformed and very uh, female and very, um, very much a, a different type of... of of energy and I was really grateful for that. I didn't really expect it and I think it was real and it, I, was, uh, I was happy to hear others express that. Um, so it was a surprise for me and, and also a very powerful spirit, spiritual experience. And as we've moved this case along, we finally got a trial date a few months ago when they set this trial um, and, and it felt like a big opportunity and, and we spent a lot of time preparing to make our necessity defense. We had a lot of witnesses lined up. Um, we were all preparing our own testimony. Um, and, uh, and then as we got into things over the past week, the prosecution announced that they were going to drop the charges to a civil infraction, which meant we didn't get a jury trial. So sort of all of our plans went out the window. Um, and, and we showed up this morning with uh, a lot of uncertainty. Um, can you talk about how you were feeling showing up this morning? What, if any, expectations you had? 
This morning, showing up, I, I really wasn't sure that there would be the chance to make a statement, whether it was one of us or many of us, whether there would even be a, a hearing of, of why we did this. Um, and yet it felt like we brought a good energy into the room because we have been through this together in, in, in different, you know, formations, but through ups and downs and um, so it, it, I had a good feeling going in there, but I, I kind of expected that we would leave without, uh, without, I thought maybe one person would be able to say something and it would be minimal. Instead, what opened up was a really beautiful uh, series of statements from individuals directly to the judge who invited them and was very much actively listening to them. Mm -hmm. And we were able to present the necessity defense in a way that uh, was quite poetic and, um, and yet still hit all of, the, all of the qualifications as we know them from the, the case law and as you, know, you and others in the Climate Disobedience Center have been working so hard to, to get to the point where it is presented. They were presented and the judge heard it and she found us um, not responsible by virtue of necessity. So I thought it was an absolutely wonderful day in that way and really beyond my expectations. But I'm curious about you because I, 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 did, I thought you were very clear and forceful in your statement and in the way that you actually put out what you wanted to have happen for us, and I was very grateful for that, and I, I, it made a big difference. So, did you have the clarity that that was going to be a possibility? Um, I mean, I, I had the intention that I wanted to get that out there, no, no matter what, whether, even if I had to interrupt the judge today. Um, and I, and I came, kind of came into today with a, a sense of disappointment, because... I, I was wrapped up in a certain set of expectations of what this was going to look like um, and had spent a lot of time and a lot of mental energy like envisioning this certain scenario of us putting on this full necessity defense and all these expert witnesses and days of testimony and everything. Um, and so it just felt like a big letdown to me that that, that scenario wasn't happening. Um, but I was trying to, as much as possible, not get lost in that disappointment and stay open to whatever possibilities were there and, and, and just sort of try to make the most of them. But, but I felt like, you know, my, my intention coming in today was, you know, even if the judge says, I'm going to dismiss these, I wanted to, like, interrupt her and say, don't dismiss it, find us not guilty by reason of necessity. Um, and if even if that's all I got across, that's that that was the one thing I wanted to make sure that got said in there. Um, but but our lawyers did a good job of at least opening that door and and allowing us to make statements. Um, and and so then I, you know we each got two minutes or so that that the judge gave us, and and so I got to got to ask her directly to find us not guilty by reason of necessity but also make a brief case for that and just make it clear that we were prepared to present that full case. We had the evidence and the, and the expert witnesses to meet all the elements of that, of that case um, and just sort of like wanted to get that out there as, as clearly as I could. Um, 
But then the amazing thing for me was all the people who came behind me and and filled out that whole story mm-hmm. and hit on all of these different pieces. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like comprehensively we really hit all of our bases, which was amazing because this is not the scenario that we prepared for. Mm-hmm. We prepared a lot, but we didn't prepare for this <laughs> this certain scenario. Um, it's true. And, you know, like, you know, I had the, I had the feeling after I spoke, I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't even mention the mass graves, you know, but then Nora Collins came in mm-hmm. and really beautifully articulated the importance of, of the mass graves, um, you know, and that happened with a lot of different issues where, where different people emphasize different points, and, and so it was amazing for me to see that fall into place, and, uh, and so that's one of the lessons that I take away from this, is the, the importance of, of preparation, but preparation for uncertainty. And you know, I feel like we we did a lot of work that that allowed us to be prepared for this situation that we didn't know what was going to happen, um, but we we knew that we had the skills and the tools amongst our whole group and the trust for one another that that we could jump into that scenario. And so when the judge said, "Well, are they prepared to speak today?" we could say, "Yes," and just laid out there um which was which was uh incredible to see and i think is a useful way to approach this work when when things are changing so rapidly and and unpredictably as they are in our society like we don't we don't know what the the political context or or the climate challenge we're going to be facing next year is but but we can know the kind of training that's going to make us prepared to take advantage of whatever opportunity presents itself or to respond to whatever crisis emerges. It, it occurred to me that there was also that moment during the action itself when there had to be a recalibration and a change of plans. That's true. And so yeah. I was going to ask you whether you made that connection and thought about that moment and if you wanted to describe it. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that in, in relationship to today. That, you know, we we had made a certain plan for the action of showing up that morning and getting in the pipeline trench and having this sit ceremony on the street while some of us were in the trench. And and we showed up that day and, and for the first time the police had blockaded off the entire area and had like 50 cops and their bikes to keep us from getting anywhere close to the trench. And so we had to have that ceremony there uh, all together on the street, um, and then we retreated and went back to the the church where the organizing had happened, and we sort of refocused, recentered our energy, re-strategized, and, and came back much more quickly with a different plan, everybody rolling out of vehicles in this caravan and, and really quickly rushing into the trench and, and taking over. Um, yeah, so we had to we had to have that flexibility from the get-go. I hadn't thought about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I want to know from um, not just preparation for trial, but what what things prepared you to be able to to be ready to take the leap in the trench? What what you know? You, you mentioned the Rosa Parks like six six. Or the, that's been evoked a couple times. The six weeks of training and sort of stuff, but 
not necessarily training, but what things in your life prepared you for this moment and made it for the, the action moment and then also maybe for the trial moment that, that allowed you to step into it in, in your power, in your... Mm, you want to answer that first? No, go ahead. <laughs> sorry, sorry, um, questions. No, it's a good question. It just gets... It's interesting to answer because some things are so personal, you know, whatever hardship, the hardest hardship that I've had in my personal life where you have to, to, to draw deep within yourself for, um, why are we here in the first place? What is this all about? What is this for? What's the point? It's really not success and, you know, and I've been having kids that go to good schools and have good careers and it's about, um, integrity and meaning and values and um, and if we don't get that right and if we get it really really wrong in particular then the rest of it's pretty meaningless so I think it's a that the things that have been difficult in my own life that have left me with a real desire for meaning and a feeling that it's not present in a lot of the way our current society functions um, a lot of what we're told to look to for um, as success or as wealth or um, as winning is pretty empty and so to be able to um, to, to, to draw on, on those feelings that are deep and personal but also those moments politically where there has been a palpable sense of how unjust and nonsensical the system is going into the war in Iraq is one I mean that was a, a moment the 2000 election was something that I went through as a, a as a person participating in that process that was very disillusioning and disappointing, but it was the Iraq invasion right after that in 2001 that truly um, shook my confidence in the ability of our of our system to function um, and uh, the. The, the way in which misinformation is used so effectively and the mass media can become a pure channel of it was really evident. So in terms of doing this action, which put you on the other side of what is technically legal, um, I think that preparing was, was, was in part living through those moments and feeling um, that the deep sense of, uh, of, of wrong was not going to be in vain, that there was going to be a time in which we could act and, and come forward. So I draw from that, that well, um, and also from seeing the example of people who've done it um, from much more difficult circumstances than mine, you know, from people who put them, their whole selves on the line uh, in movements as we discussed, like the civil rights movement. But all that said, I don't think I'm particularly well prepared. I don't think any of us are in a way um, to take these actions and to do it together is, is what makes it um, inviting. Yeah, I mean, there was, there's a lot. For me, there's so many different aspects of my life that came together to allow me to, to engage in that. Um, but I think the most important for, for this particular action um, was was just a practice of not looking away from the reality of climate change and and the continuing unfolding of the crisis. Um, you know, I talked to a lot of people who 
actively work on climate issues, people who are professionals in the climate movement. And, and some of them openly say that they haven't read any the climate science in years. They don't read any climate stories um, because they can't handle them. Um, but, but for me, it, it's always felt important to continue that active witness, to continue paying attention, um, per particularly as we passed the point where... Um, where it was too late to prevent a pretty catastrophic level of climate change, um, I felt like there's still some moral responsibility to stay present to that that unfolding tragedy and reality. Um, and so it was that that you know had me in the practice of continually reading all the news around climate change, which brought me to that story about the mass grave in, in Pakistan that they were digging in anticipation of a heat wave, knowing that that's so far along that they're gonna need a mass grave. Um, and for some reason that just broke my heart in a whole new way, you know, even after reading this stuff all the time, that particular story, that particular reality of being in the age of anticipatory mass grave seems so significant to me that, that I felt like this is something that I can't turn away from. I can't just let this go. That um, that this needs to be honored and recognized. That this is this is a point in our human history where 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 it needs to be recognized that we have passed this point. We can't we can't pass this point without honoring that. Um, without holding that grief that, that something has been lost here. Um, and so that's what drove me into, into feeling like I had to do something. Um, and the fact that, that so many folks were already fighting this pipeline sort of made, made the natural connections there for me to, to reach out to them. And can I give a more practical answer to the question? Some of what made me feel prepared was honestly the work that you've done, Tim, on civil disobedience at our minister's training and, and the, the Climate Disobedience Center in general, but the people that are, are teaching the practice and the tool of civil disobedience in a way that is very, that encompasses its spiritual dimensions, mm -hmm. I think are really critical right now for this movement. And so I felt prepared from having heard from you all uh, also about what would happen along the way and um, and also you know to, to match that with with stories as we've meant we've mentioned before of people who have really have changed the course of, of American history through their acts of civil disobedience so to hold those two things together to see how it has worked in the past and to see the very practical ways in which we can um, we can do it now uh, really did make me feel prepared for this um, you, you mentioned, like, the, you, you alluded to the spiritual needs, the spiritual needs in this moment that's important in the movement. Unpack that. What is that? <laughs> um, so, I think that many people feel a deep sense of loss um, during this time of ecological crisis because um, 
we can read the news, we can know about, you know, what's happening with, with both the physical garbage in the oceans, the gaseous waste that is filling our atmosphere. Um, we can look around us in our daily lives, um, feel how trapped sometimes we feel in these systems that have been built up to, uh, to really serve a, a way of life that is about production, consumption, profit, and we know how that goes. Um, to externalize costs uh, for, for, the, for the companies that are seen to be providing economic growth. So when you're in that situation, um, I think that uh, there is a spiritual need. There's a spiritual need to know how to, how to um, resist, to know, uh, I mean, it's kind of like the, the serenity prayer about, um, about uh, to, to the, the wisdom to know the difference between the things that you can change and the things that you can't change. And um, the serenity to accept the things that you can't change and the courage to change the things you can and the wisdom to know the difference. And I think, I think that... I need a new chapter to that. Which is? Serenity prayer. Why? Well, and the, the strategy to shift the boundary between the two. Yeah. Like, maybe the the courage to change the things that I can change, the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, and the strategy to shift the boundaries between the two. I see. Yeah. Um, I think that, 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 that wisdom and strategy are slightly different, um, but I don't know, wisdom can encompass strategy. Yeah. Um, so, in any event, there is a way in which we have to go about our lives um, in this system, but also be looking for the opportunities to change it. And I think that that can take a spiritual toll. And, um, and, and the strength that you can get when you feel like you have met the moral call of this time, or you are striving to, um, fills us a, a spiritual... Um, need and sensibility, which I, which I think is important and also very powerful, especially when it, more and more people do it. You know, Reinhold Niebuhr wrote that serenity prayer. I know. And, I mean, he always had his own theology evolve over the course of his lifetime. He changed the things that he said and what he believed. Uh, so it's only fitting that we, that we continue to allow his serenity prayer to evolve. It shouldn't stay stagnant just because he died. Mm -hmm. Well, I think many people do say that and, and then and, and lean towards serenity and, you know, what you can't change. Right. But, you know, serenity doesn't mean passivity and resignation uh, also. Serenity hmm. can, be, um, can be reproachful also. I mean, it can be renounceful also, of, of, but it, it is just... Uh, it is just to know when someone has died, they're not, they're, rage is not the appropriate response, but mm -hmm. serenity doesn't mean that you're okay with it. Mm -hmm. So what, is, what does serenity look like for you like at a, at a point like this where there are losses that are happening that we can't change? Like, like or, or losses that are going to continue to happen. I think we can that change. That we can't them. change. I mean, I, I, I think we're in courage 
and wisdom because I think we can change them. I actually fully believe in the element of the necessity defense about reasonable expectation that this mm -hmm. action would change something. Yeah. Because I think that, that there's something so untenable about the situation now and it absolutely must and will come from individuals mm -hmm. standing and putting themselves in the way. So, but at that point when we took action, we couldn't have changed the mass grave in Pakistan. And, and so what does serenity look like for the mass grave in Pakistan? Well, I think it, it's determined and focused. It's, it's not resigned. Um, and it is, um, in a way, aligned with courage. So it's, there, there's a type of... And, and, you know, we've talked about this in terms of strategies within the, the movement and, mm -hmm. and, and how the best way to, in my view, unmask the, the, violent, the violence within what is legal is to, is to have, you know, a, a, a bearing that can, can bring that to light because it's not distracting with mm -hmm. all kinds of other things that one is objecting to. Um, and so I think that, that having a kind of laser focus can come from a sense of serenity. But I didn't mean to put my, all my eggs in the basket of serenity for <laughs> I just thought about it. Um, because I do think that, that when you ask the question about spirituality, um, that we all do have to recognize the fact that it is, as individual beings in this moment, it can, it can be difficult to focus because there is so much to be angry about and upset about mm -hmm. and guilty and ashamed. I mean, I, I feel complicit in this whole system in so many ways that, um, that sometimes it can feel paralyzing. And yeah. it, that's not helpful to anyone either. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's next? I mean, I'd love to ask you how you feel about where we go strategically from here. I think that's a great way to end it, um, talking about that. You've got to answer that question yourself. Me too. Okay, I want to hear personally, where are you going yeah. from here? Yeah. Me personally? Yeah. Or, um, I mean, not, not, not in a strategic or, or sense, the, but like, yeah. I have done this. Yeah. Where, mm -hmm. where am I now? What does this mean for my life going forward? Right. I mean, I think for, for me, I mean, I'm just answering for real now. Like, I, um, so I was, I was really, um, I found, I was very moved by Standing Rock. We talked a little bit about this earlier. Um, I, I went there briefly. I, um, I, there are certain moments in this movement that are really important that I don't necessarily feel like I have a, a strong role in. Mm -hmm. Um, but there are others where I, I may, and I want to look out for where um, the set of things that I have to bring um, will match up with the need to be a catalyst in any given situation. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm open to that, and I, I believe in civil disobedience as a tool. I also believe that we should be doing a lot, um, whether it's in the category of boycott or PR campaigns or divestment or to try to really bring it back to the corporate actors who yeah. are driving this system and oftentimes um, greenwashing and, and, and hiding the fact that they're externalizing all of their costs onto the whole rest of, of life. So I'm looking for ways to help other strategies like that, but for me, um, 
I, I mean, I work at the Center for Earth Ethics, so we train uh, faith leaders around climate change, and we also educate people, union students at the seminary, and um, making curriculum that can be taken outside of, of the seminary. Um, we are we're working hard in in those areas, but I'm that's so far what I what I can say about what's next. All right. Well, for but, me, yeah. Uh, I don't know what's next for me. Um, uh, I mean, I was saying to somebody over the past week, once these charges got got dropped, I I felt this sort of spaciousness about my schedule, like I'd spent so much time preparing for this um, that, that in some ways I feel more uh, more sense of possibility in my own schedule than I've felt in a really long time. And, but part of what this experience today, and, and I think the experience uh, two years ago with the action itself, really reinforces for me is the need to to be open to opportunities that present themselves, to be open to that sense of calling that I really felt um, with the action, that sense of calling that I've always felt towards pursuing opportunities for for a jury trial and a necessity defense case. Um, and and the and the importance of building the communities of people that can support one another in making the most of those opportunities that emerge, and and so that's really where I'm where I'm at now, and um, don't know what that's going to look like for me in a specific way, but I'm excited for whatever comes next. I'm sure it'll be exciting and surprising, uh, no matter what we try to prepare for. <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah, it's an exciting time. Well, thanks for yes. joining me for this conversation. Thank you very much. Our music is by Brian Cahall. You can find us online at climateworkshop.org and on Facebook and Twitter at Climate Workshop. Climate Workshop podcast is made possible by our listener community. You can go to climateworkshop.org and click become a patron. We're in this together, so we appreciate your support. Still a light that flickers, there's a light that still burns on. A light that flickers, there's a light that still burns on. I take care of the spark, but baby, won't you lend your pretty little palm just to shield it from the wind? And honey, baby, maybe this light will be burning long.